You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right. I'm going to invite you back to your seats. Good morning. Welcome. My name is Michael. Um, as, as Pastor Jeremy mentioned, I'm the pastoral resident here at River City. And as part of even my development, kind of called towards the pastorate, I, I have the privilege of, of doing things alongside people like Jared and Luke and now Tucker as well. So what an exciting time for our church as the Lord continues to provide leaders to shepherd our church. It's an exciting time. So I'll invite you back to your seats, and as you do that, go ahead and open in your Bibles to Esther chapter 5. That's where we'll be this morning, Esther 5, and we'll get into Esther 6 as well. And if you don't own a Bible, we actually have some at our resource table right back there. Uh, Feel free to grab one of those and use it today and take it home as our gift to you. And we'll be on page 413 in those Bibles. Esther 5 verse 9 is where we will start this morning. We are continuing our series titled, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God, in the book of Esther, where we see imperfect and ordinary people, like Mordecai, in our passage today, exhibiting faithfulness to God in exile. And as Pastor Jeremy shared when we started this series, this is why we chose the book of Esther, because like Esther, we all live in exile. And many Christians, including us here today, will feel ordinary and even at times compromised in our morality and maturity. And like Esther, we all have opportunities to be courageous, to trust in God's power and his plans as we respond to his leading. Because even though Esther is not even in this passage, we don't see her doing anything, God is leading her. He's leading Mordecai and all his people forward. God is at work merging Esther's plan to deliver her people from death, we saw this in last week's passage, and and merging this plan to humble Haman, the one who conspired with the king to have Esther's people killed. For Haman is the one so consumed with his lust for power that he doesn't realize his invitation to Esther's prestigious banquet is actually his invitation to his downfall. So so all Esther can do here is wait on God. She's not even aware that he is already at work in different places that are beyond her view. And again, we will find that what may seem like a series of coincidences in our passage turns out to be the extraordinary plan of God. So let's learn more about God's power at work through all kinds of people in Esther 5. Would you stand with me as I read God's word to us? Esther 5, 9 to 6, 14 says this. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate." 
Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthena and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials." Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people. How in it we see that one man's quest for power is really a blind pursuit towards defeat. For you are a God who opposes the proud and shows grace to the humble. And what may seem like a slapstick comedy here is really much more serious, a much more serious hand at work. And so we thank you for working in the unseen ways of life to save us from our real enemies of sin and Satan. Even though the grass withers and the flower fades, God, your word will stand forever. So as we meditate on this passage, we ask for your help. Would you open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things found in your word? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were to walk the streets in your neighborhood and ask anyone this question, are you perfect? I bet almost any person you ask, regardless of their background, would answer the same, no, I'm not perfect. I've heard it said that this is the one axiom all of us will vote for, that no one is perfect. 
But that doesn't seem to bother us at all. We, we don't understand the seriousness of not being perfect. We know this because we compare ourselves by one another. Imperfection for imperfection. Like a computer, our minds can be machines of comparison, creating a hierarchy based on one's social power or lack thereof, all of which are based on imperfect standards. And in our fallen and broken world, we can leverage our power, which is our perceived ability to control the situation around us to ensure that others submit to our authority. And another thing our minds do instinctively is we categorize people based on if they fit our paradigms of what normal behavior is within our expectations. And without over-psychoanalyzing the the persons of Haman and Mordecai in our passage, it's still clear that there is dissonance in the behavior between the two. Esther 5.9 says, Haman saw that Mordecai neither rose nor trembled before him, and Haman was filled with wrath at Mordecai. Haman sees Mordecai defying Haman's categories for how Mordecai was supposed to treat him as one with more prominence and power. Haman is, after all, second in command to the king. So Haman tries to reconcile the conflict with his own categories, which turns to him leveraging his own power in an attempt to subdue Mordecai. But one thing Haman does not understand is his little power play here is that Mordecai is a representative of the standard of true perfection, a standard that is completely different, does not play by the powers of this rule, but plays in a way that turns these powers upside down. This is how God works. He reverses the powers of this world for his glory and does so using imperfect people who are faithful, like Mordecai, and imperfect people who are prideful, like Haman, to accomplish his perfect plans. And this leads us to our main point this morning. There is no power too great to reverse the plans of God. There is no plot too premeditated, no proposal too foolproof, and no position too prominent for the plans of God to reverse them all. There is no power too great to reverse the plans of God. Plot proposal, and position summarize Haman's three attempts at grabbing for power, and these will serve as our three points today. We'll talk about a reversal of plot, a reversal of proposal, and a reversal of position. The book of Esther is full of rich irony, and I think the author wants us to compare these ironic reversals of power. So we'll first look at the reversal of plot, how Haman hatches a plot to kill Mordecai, which contrasts with Mordecai fording a plot to save the king. Next, we'll look at a reversal of proposal, how Haman's proposal to the king to kill Mordecai never even get shared, and how that contrasts with the king's proposal to elevate Mordecai, which is completely shared by Haman. And finally, we will look at the reversal of position, how by the end of our passage, it is clear, even to Haman's wife and his friends, that his position of power is already ending, and that Mordecai's elevation has already begun. It's important to see that all these reversals point to the greatest reversal of power, Our greatest enemy in this passage is not Haman. It is our sin, and it is Satan. 
our sin tricks us to believe that no matter how ashamed I may be by the weaknesses in my life, I am quick to excuse myself because I can look around and find someone who is weaker than me. This creates a world that Satan, the chief power monger, thrives in. And it's until we see the standard of true power and true perfection in God alone, it's that day that we see him in his power that we are all undone. But the good news is the gospel is the power of God reversing the curse of our sin and reversing the schemes of the devil. The gospel is Jesus coming to keep the standard of God we could not by being the standard that we can follow because of his death and resurrection from the dead for us. And so let's learn more about the gospel being the greatest reversal of death to life in the book of Esther. We'll start with the reversal of plots. Look with me at verses 10 and 14 and see how a plot made by Haman to kill Mordecai will end up playing into a plot made by Mordecai and Esther to kill Haman. The basic issue in these verses is although Haman gains prominence by attending uh, the banquet of Esther, Mordecai undermines this through his refusal to submit to Haman's power. So the suggestion by, by Haman's posse here is to impale Mordecai or to hang him. Um, on a stake so high that it would publicly humiliate him. Haman is simply to use his power to destroy Mordecai before the people. And if that isn't sickening enough, Zeresh's encouragement to Haman is that Mordecai's death will allow him to enjoy Esther's banquet. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the whole book of Esther pivots. Look with me at Esther 6, 1, and 2. On the very night that that Haman is busy erecting this ridiculously oversized stake to kill Mordecai, and the night before Esther's second banquet, the king can't sleep. The timing is coincidental, but in that we see the power of God at work orchestrating his purposes. The king's sleep fled on what will turn out to be just the right night. Esther has shown great wisdom so that on the next day she will in some way bring about deliverance for the Jews, but it is in this moment that we see um, that something more is at play here, something more than just wisdom to deliver God's people, something none of us could even dream of. The king's response to sleeplessness was the call for the scroll of the chronicles to be read to him. And of all the chronicles, the king just happens to hear the record of how Mordecai had saved his life, which he had totally forgotten. I I mean, what's the point of calling them memorable deeds if, if you can't remember them? So in thinking about God's providence in the life of his people, it is worth remembering that years went by between the time when Mordecai prevented an assassination and the time when Mordecai was rewarded. Sometimes relief and deliverance for God's people takes years And sometimes it takes a couple days. This is true in Esther and true for us. We see these things play out in a literal and physical way in Esther with justice brought to the villain and success for the godly, but this doesn't always happen in our lives or in our lifetimes. But in the big picture, it does. It will. We can look at instances of God's power in human events and recognize it as a smaller picture of a larger reality. So my encouragement to all of us here this morning is to not have such a narrow outlook on your trajectory in life. 
Temporary success does not equal God's favor, nor does temporary failure equal God's displeasure. Though we often think that way when things don't go our way. Instead, all of the power we think we have, we are never guaranteed the outcomes we desire. And and wisdom can be undone by folly, especially in a world where there are great disparities of power. And so it's easy to become impatient, imagining that God's care for us should follow our timetable and be immediately evident. But although this passage shows us that God is active in the life of his people, it turns out that God's timetable is very different than ours. And in any instance, the timing is perfect for God's purposes. This means for us very practically is that the timing of being laid off from your job is perfect for God's purposes. The timing of buying the home you wanted is perfect for God's purposes. And even the timing when you will die is perfect for God's purposes. The mystery of God's power means we do not dictate to him how and where he works, but we trust and use all of the wisdom he has made available to us and trust that his power is still perfect when we have no clue what's going on at any given time. We can trust that God can and does reverse any plot brought against us. We can also trust in God's power at work reversing the proposals of people vying for power. That's our second point here. Look with me at Esther 6, we'll be in verses 3 through 10. By this point in verse 3, we can imagine the king is wide awake after realizing he never honored Mordecai. So the king asks if, if there's anyone there to help him, to which help arrives from the most unlikely person. Haman has come to speak to the king, and the king wants to speak to Haman. Though in the conversation that follows, neither will make clear to the other the actual point of their discussion. Both of them want to talk about Mordecai, but for very different reasons, and neither of them know that. So once again, no one could imagine God's power at work to save his people through a monarch's memory lapse, his henchman's arrival, and a plot that never gets proposed. Instead, what is proposed is Haman's quest for power. He he is consumed by it and traps himself with his own words. When the king asks in verse 6, What is to be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? The king's question is innocent enough. It is precisely the sort of question that his number two should be able to answer. And Haman does, and Haman's answer does make sense. We see in verse eight. But Haman can imagine no one more worthy of reward from the king than himself. So the heart behind his answer is a heart that is deceived by sin, a heart we all have when we answer, there's no one more important, no one else more important than me, so I will give the answer that I deserve for myself. This is our heart's desire when faced with an opportunity to elevate ourselves. And here we see it distracts Haman from his purpose. For everything would have gone differently if Haman had simply asked who the king had in mind. Perhaps Haman's proposal would have gone forth. But instead, Haman's proposal about Mordecai is suddenly put aside. And the king's proposal about Mordecai is put forward by Haman's words. Because Haman saw the reward, the honor, and the power only for himself. So the king's question and Haman's answer is, it's the same Q&A played out throughout human history since the first sin was committed. We think we are the ones who are to be honored. We think we are deserving, entitled to be like the king. 
And it's true. There is one who is to be honored, but it's not Haman, and it's not us. And in an ultimate sense, it's not even Mordecai, because as we'll see, Mordecai's honor is a clear picture that points to the one who is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. It's important that we see Mordecai as a representative of the true king, just as we today are representatives. And we face several challenges at being faithful representatives to our neighbors, If you've ever told someone you are a Christian, chances are you've received different responses from them. One response you might get is flattery. Someone might say, you must be dedicated to your religion. We need more people who are virtuous and and good people in our city. Someone might tell you that if you say you're a Christian. You may be then tempted to think, they're right. I am dedicated. I am a good person, which honors us rather than the one we represent. Another response you might get are apologies. Oh, you're a Christian? Well, I'm sorry for what I said. I'm sorry for doing that around you. And you think, yes, you better not say that around me. I am a Christian. Again, honoring yourself by judging them as less honorable. Why do we get these responses from our neighbors? Why flattery or apology, but no honor to the one who deserves it? We know that we are not deserving a special treatment. We are sinners in need of grace, just like anyone else. And that gets at it right there. It's because deep down, people know they are imperfect because of their sin, and they will put whatever shields they can to cover themselves from a perfect God. Reverence for the powerful is built into all of us, and so we recognize the one who is deserving of honor. But the tragedy is we can move further away out of fear of God and what he can do to us. And we fear him because we what we've done to him. He is holy and we are not. And it's easier to retreat to our pride or even our self-pity than go to the holy. People will even turn flattery and apologies into a shield so they don't have to face a holy God. And we can't stop their behavior, but we don't have to enable it. River City, we can be representatives of our true king who deliver a proposal that the flatterers and the fearful have never heard, but can trust is true for them. We all need a shield from God's holy judgment. Sin and Satan would have us find safety in our pride and self-pity, but we won't find it there or anywhere else but in Jesus Jesus offers us a better proposal. He is the Holy One of God who took on his judgment so we don't have to. And now our sin is cleared by Christ and all our king feels for us is delight. As exiles living under Persian rule, the people during Esther's time would have read this passage longing for this delight. For the day when their deliverer would finally come, remove Satan, the great power monger, and have Christ take his rightful position. And now we'll see the position that Haman meant for himself will end up being the position meant for Mordecai. This is the reversal of position we will look at in Esther 6. Look with me in verse 10. It's at precisely the point where Haman imagines himself at the highest he could be, he has, in reality, begun to fall. For Haman did not discover who the king was going to honor until it was too late. Haman is told to do all that he has said, even to the extent of having his suggestions quoted back to him for Mordecai. Just as 
Esther has put on royalty, so also Mordecai is dressed royally. Haman then had to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. And it's after his parade in verse 12 that Mordecai returned to the king's gate because he was unmoved by pride and moved to remain faithful to his position. But in contrast, Haman moves ever closer to his ruin as he implodes over his change in position in verse 12. Haman is insecure in himself after recognizing who he really is before others and in himself. What he thought he once was, he never actually was. We see in verse 13, Haman again gathered his friends and his wife to recount his fortunes, but this time there's no boasting. Instead, he can describe only the humiliation that has befallen him. The answer they give offers no comfort, but is the wisest thing they ever said. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Even those who lust for power recognize the power at work here. They recognize a power that is reversing the fortunes of the Jewish people. Haman receives their wisdom, but does not turn around and surrender his sin before this God. Instead, we will see in our next passage, he himself is surrendered for judgment on behalf of God's people. We've been talking about the hardest reality humanity faces is that each of us will one day come before the Lord. The day that we sin, our judgment is death. But have you ever stopped to consider what is involved in the slightest sin? You are essentially saying that my will has a right that is more powerful than the rights of God. And it's terrifying that so many in our culture do things because they say they have the moral right to do it. If we know anything about God, we know that God has never given anyone the moral right to do as they please. And I don't even want to think what a person will say when they stand before God and say to him, I had the right to do what I did. Where did you get that right? When we defy the authority of God, we insult his power. But we're accustomed to doing that. And we think it no serious matter to disobey the king of the universe. It is, as pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul calls it, cosmic treason. But instead of judgment, God pours out his mercy. And this is the repetition of the Old Testament. God does this over and over to humanity who disobey him over and over. His mercy gives them, and it gives us, time to repent. But instead, as we see in Haman, we exploit it. R.C. Sproul says it like this, we come to think that God doesn't care if we sin, and if we do sin, there's nothing he can do about it. We become so accustomed to God's normal patterns of grace and mercy that we not only take it for granted, but we begin to assume it. We begin to demand it, and then if we don't get it, we are furious. We need to understand the difference between justice and mercy. The minute you think God owes you mercy, a bell should go off in your brain to tell you you are no longer thinking about mercy. For by definition, mercy is voluntary. God is never obligated to be merciful to humanity. He doesn't owe you mercy. We see that Haman is learning this the hard and fast way. His judgment comes swiftly in verse 14, for there's no time lapse between the final words of Haman's friends and the arrival of the king's eunuchs. It's here that we see more of this reversal of position. 
Think back to the beginning of our passage. We see Haman high on life. It's like he, he strides onto the scene as Haman, rich in splendor. Haman, one with a huge family. Haman, the one advanced above the officials and the servants of the king. But who is Haman by the end of our passage? He's one who doesn't have royal robes, doesn't have a royal horse, has no royal crown, and is one who is not delighted by the king. By the end, Haman appears not ready or even he's unwilling for what's happening next. He is hurried away to Queen Esther's banquet. We should pay attention to a small word like hurry. It indicates Haman's grip on power is slipping. His control over the situation here is slipping. We will see Haman will lose his life and then he will lose everything he had power over and everyone he took pride in. Haman looks more like someone who is being arrested than someone who is being paraded to a banquet. Haman is being hurried away to his death. It is a clear loss of position next to God's position of power. And it is a clear warning for us as we go to the places where we live, work, and play. When you arrive at work tomorrow, will you congratulate your colleague for getting the raise that you asked for, but they received, even if you are their superior? Or when you drop your child off at their after-school activity tomorrow, will you honor the leaders who are helping your child grow rather than criticize how you could lead things better? And when you and your spouse are working through a conflict and you know you're in the wrong, will you humbly admit you are wrong rather than standing behind all the things you've done right? We can strive to live with this kind of behavior, especially as imperfect people, because we know the gospel gives us the humility to admit our need is great and the confidence to know God loves us more. These reversals of power in our passage ought to convict us of our need for Jesus. We, like Haman, have a bunch of things to build our little temporary kingdoms. But Jesus, as the Son of God, has all things and wills all things for his eternal kingdom. Like Haman, we are ruled by our sin, and Haman came to rule over sinners with his sin. But Jesus was never ruled by sin, and he comes to rule with love that overcomes sin. We, like Haman, seek power and prestige at the expense of others, but Jesus advanced the power of God at great expense to himself. His greatest power was the appearance of being powerless on the cross and in the tomb. Yet those two acts were needed to show the power of his resurrection from the dead and victory over sin and Satan. The ultimate enemies of sin and Satan are beneath God and have no rule over him. Rather, God rules that sin and death have been defeated in Christ. Christ is Lord over sin and Satan. Haman believed he had the power to end a bitter and drawn-out rivalry between his people and Mordecai's people. But the God of Mordecai's people, Israel, actually has the power to end this ancient rivalry and has the power to one day reconcile all peoples across ethnic and cultural and political and racial and any other division. He will reconcile us to himself and with one another. This is God's plan set in motion, and there's nothing too great that can reverse it. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. 
We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. 